You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. All right, go ahead and find your seats again. All right, well, we're so glad you're enjoying fellowship with one another and just getting caught up and sharing how your summer's going. Well, I'm thankful you could join us for worship here this morning. Uh, Pastor Trevor is in uh, Moldova and Romania teaching and preaching there, so be, make sure you continue to pray for him and his uh, family is visiting family in the U.S., so they're, they're getting some time away. And so it's left to me to begin our new series today. I'm excited about where we're going and, and just the things we're going to learn from this new book in our summer series. But uh, just by kind of by way of introduction as we start here, I want to ask you something. Uh, where were you on Friday, June 24th, 2022? Some of you are like, man, I have no idea. That was just two days ago, just only two days ago. And it's a memorable day, memorable day because on Friday, the highest courts in the United States officially handed down the historic decision that overturned the almost 50-year-old Roe v. Wade case. Yeah, it's, it is worth celebrating. The, the ruling argues that abortion is not a federally protected constitutional right, and it could mean that up to half of the U.S. states prohibit abortion. Uh, this reversal is, and this moral victory I mean, it's monumental. I really didn't imagine it happening in my lifetime, maybe not even ever, and here we are. Here we are. The significance of the Supreme Court decision is really incalculable. I mean, the number of lives changed and spared. Well, I bring that up because I want us to think about you know, how did we arrive at that historic day? How did Friday come about? What were the factors involved. I mean, after all, overturning Roe v. Wade did not happen overnight or in a vacuum. In fact, it took five decades of intentionality within an ever-changing political landscape. Uh, let's consider some of the factors that, that led to that turn of events. I mean, there's the relentless efforts of pro-life organizations, prior court cases that paved the way the perhaps unlikely election of a certain president who appointed certain Supreme Court justices, uh, the appointment of lower court justices, the countless books and articles and speeches counteracting faulty abortion logic, the prayer vigils, the um, peaceful protests. I mean, just, just on and on we see that there were so many contributing factors that led to what we, the news we received on Friday and it's easy to see that it wasn't just one thing, right? Uh, there, there were certain small events, and there were seemingly kind of unrelated events. I mean, you could, you could take so many different things, even those Supreme Court justices and how their the upbringing being raised in maybe a conservative background or their understanding of the law and how they had to be put in just the right time. And it's on and on and on. So many tens of thousands even of factors that would need to be into place. So how do, we, how do we explain it? How do we understand 
how that all comes together. How does it work? Is it, is it coincidence? Is it, um, I'm, I'm just so thankful that not fate kicked in there. No. We explain it in a word. God's providence. It's not a fluke that Donald Trump was president and that he appointed Supreme Court justices. It's not lucky that certain cases made their way to the highest court. It's, it's not unrelated that persistent pro-life voices challenge the narrative. Ultimately, it's providence. People were involved and the, the events happened in real time, but undergirding it all was God's sovereignty. And this is a great encouragement to us. It's a great comfort to know that, that God is in the midst, that, that God is caring about, carrying out his plans and his purposes. But I'm, I'm not sure if you've noticed, it's not only abortion. We live in a really sinful world. Uh, there's the corruption of our own hearts. You know, we feel the selfishness, this, this pride, this greedy nature, this laziness, or a host of other ways that we live contrary to God's design. And there's the sin around us. I mean, you see it. There's the moral decline, the foolishness, the idolatry, the, the practicing and the approving of evil. And, and what seems to be this is endless expressions of depravity. Uh, frankly, it can be disheartening. Uh, the good news, like what we heard on Friday, seems somewhat uncommon. And even though we know God is in control, uh, we can wonder what is going on. And why are there so many advancements in evil? Uh, the brokenness of this sin-cursed world, if nothing else, reminds us that we are exiles in a strange land. This is not our home. We are citizens of heaven. And while we wait and while we groan for the fullness of our adoption, well, the ruler of this world makes futile attempts to thwart God's plan of redemption. It's always been this way. Uh, from the beginning, Satan has sought to destroy God's people and derail and frustrate God's unshakable plan. I mean, you think all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Satan tempted Eve, which plunged the world into sin. Yet the Lord revealed his eternal plan to crush Satan and rescue his people. He wasn't caught off guard. In Egypt, Pharaoh ordered the, the male Hebrew infants killed, jeopardizing the continuation of God's people and the Messianic line. God, however, raised up Moses, displayed his power, and avenged the death of the Hebrew babies. Fast forward to, to Herod in the New Testament, who, who slaughtered infants in Bethlehem, and yet God preserved the newly born Messiah. Uh, during Jesus' earthly ministry, Satan tempted Jesus to worship him. He incited Peter to try to prevent the cross, and he energized Judas to betray the Son of God. But in every case, Jesus prevailed and God's plan of redemption endured. You see, throughout biblical and even secular history, God has demonstrated his sovereign prerogative can't be modified or frustrated or stopped. Even Satan's evil agenda and man's sinful desires work towards God's ultimate purposes. It's important we keep that in mind as we begin our new summer series on the book of Esther. I'm really excited about the book of Esther. I've enjoyed reading it and getting familiar with it. But if we're not careful, we could read Esther as this beautiful story with a suspenseful plot twist and a, and a happy ending, but with no personal relevance. Uh, if, if we're not careful, we could celebrate Esther's courage and rejoice with the preservation of the Jews while missing the main character. 
I mean, don't get me wrong, Esther is, it is an incredible story. Among the Jewish community, it's one of the most beloved books of the Old Testament. It's been called a masterpiece of literature, a treasure, an historic romance, and the action is quick and exciting. It's fast-paced. The story has a dramatic turn of events, many, many ironic reversals, and a climactic triumph. There's an evil villain, a beautiful heroine, a wise advisor, and an impulsive king. The storyline, however, the storyline, it's really only the canvas for God to leave his fingerprints. And the human characters are only the role players. God is the main character, and he is the real hero. After all, Esther and Mordecai, as we'll be introduced to later, are not exactly exemplary. Amidst their courage and success, they, there are obvious failures or at least questionable actions. And you know what? That's the point. The Jews needed God to deliver them, not Esther. God graciously used her, as we'll see in the coming weeks. But the happenings in Esther show how God's providence works within the ordinary, messy, and even sinful ways of people. God is in control, and he's accomplishing his purposes. Nothing and no one can thwart his plans, not a pagan king, not foreign nations, not evil or sinful people, not Satan's agendas or the powers of darkness, not apparently hopeless situations or impossible turn events. God never fails. He reigns and he wins. No exceptions. Now, I should admit the elephant in the room here. If you have any familiarity with Esther, you know that you know, God's not mentioned in the book. Not even once. In fact, there's no mention of the Torah, Jewish customs, sacrificial system, or covenants. If you were to replace the Jewish nation with another nation, Esther would seem like just a record of events in Persia. So what's going on? Uh, why, why was it written this way? And while many somewhat creative and entertaining explanations have been given, the best explanation for God's apparent absence is really an intentional way to emphasize his providence despite the circumstances. Let me tell you what I mean. Esther, as you read it and as you, as you just get engrossed in the story, it's an invitation to deliberately look for God's activity. Because it's not explicit, the implicit becomes more obvious. It becomes accentuated. I mean, if God was mentioned on every page in Esther, you might miss him. His apparent silence makes his providence even louder. You read it and you think, man, where is God? Oh, wait a minute. He's right there. And he's right there. And you know, that wouldn't have happened unless God was bringing that together. I, well, he's everywhere. When, when you slow down, you realize God is the explanation of the story and how the events unfold. The book of Esther, therefore, is really the most true-to-life biblical example of God's providence precisely because he seems absent. Even in the most pagan corner of the world, God was ruling to the benefit of his people and the glory of his name. Esther is true to life because, you know what, you and I, we all make real-life decisions without a special word from God. We don't have a writing on the wall. There is no prophetic vision or even often no specific promise from Scripture. 
We live in the middle of a story without a detailed script of how it unfolds. I mean, we know the ending, and, and we know that God's Word guides us, but along the way, we must faithfully live it out by walking in the Spirit, abiding in Christ, renewing our minds, and trusting that the Lord is in the midst of it all. Esther helps us do that. The book of Esther gives us hope and encouragement and comfort. We need Esther because we don't hear the audible voice of God. And we sometimes wonder, where is he? Well, he's working in the background. You're planning your course, he's directing your steps. You're doing everyday life, he's working all things together for your good. Esther teaches us to see the divine grace in daily life. It reminds us that all of life has a purpose and a direction that every ordinary and every extraordinary moment is working towards the same goal, God's glory through his sovereign kingdom and redeeming grace. When we view Esther this way as, as a sort of record of real life events and a showcase of God's redemptive power within ordinary actions and regular people and ordinary moments, when we, when we view Esther this way, we can place ourselves in the story Maybe you're in a situation that, that seems hopeless or impossible. Maybe God seems silent or absent in your life. Maybe you're turning through the pages of your life and it feels like, no, where is God? Maybe it feels like you're in Persia surrounded by worldly, secular, anti-Christian society and, and it just wears on you. We can all relate. We all live in the seemingly ungodly world where, where God is unseen and while we wait, we sometimes suffer through. We, we sometimes feel the weight of this sin-cursed world. We fight through the fog, and, and at times we're grasping for God. Where is he? What's going on? But we also remember that God is with us, for us, and acting on our behalf. As we fight through the fog, we remember God is acting for us. He's demonstrated his love so clearly, and every action of his is no different. So we cling to the rock-solid promises of Scripture. We renew our minds with evidences of his steadfast love. We know that God makes the impossible possible. He turns hopelessness into triumph, and he does it all according to his sovereign grace. Aren't you God, glad God is in control? We can trust God's providence even when we don't see it, or understand it. And thankfully, we have God's Word to strengthen our resolve and teach us the truth. This morning, we're going to observe from God's Word three observations, three, I say, just say demonstrations of God's providence that compel us to trust, obey, and worship. Three demonstrations of God's providence. Before we get into the text, let me just pray for us. Uh, Father, we are so thankful for uh, the real-life nature of your Word and, and how it, it, it really comes at us at the street level and identifies with our experience of life. Uh, we're thankful that it, it teaches us about you, it teaches us about us, and it teaches us about redemption in Christ. We're also thankful, Lord, that, that we can turn to your Word and, and get an understanding of what you're doing and how you're acting and how you're moving. And, and we know it's true in our life as well. 
although it's many thousands of years later from Esther, you are the same and you work the same and, and you're still trustworthy and you're still accomplishing your purposes in very real ways, albeit through ordinary mundane moments. So, Lord, I just pray you'd teach our hearts this morning. I, I pray, Spirit, you'd, you'd move among us and you'd open our eyes to see the truth and to live out the truth and to be um, doers of your word. Uh, and just cause us to be those who worship and take refuge in you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please turn your Bibles to Esther. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and our ushers will be happy to supply you with a copy. If you're not sure where Esther is at, just go to Psalms. It's about the middle of your Bible and turn to the left, past Job, and you're at Esther. Our aim this morning, as I said, is to observe three demonstrations of God's providence that compel us to trust, obey, and worship. Our text is Esther chapter 1. We can think of this first chapter as kind of the setup. Now, this is the backdrop to the main event. And even though Esther is not mentioned in chapter 1, yeah, that's right, God's not mentioned, Esther's not mentioned, but still, these events are going to propel us and move us forward and understand what is God doing, how is he moving. They're essential to understanding how she would become queen and how God would rescue his people. The title of the sermon is The King's Banquet. And while it was the king of Persia who was hosting the guest, it was the king of kings who was choreographing the feast and making the preparations for the certain outcome. It's the king's banquet. And we begin with his providential, his providence in historical events. We start with God's providence in historical events. Follow along as I read in Esther chapter 1, just the first three verses. Now in the days of Ashuerus, the Ashuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ashuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. These verses give us a kind of historical context. Uh, they point us to the broader setting of God's providence. In other words, Esther is about God's purposeful action to sustain and preserve his people. And these first verses tell us when and where that happened. They reveal how God's covenant promises surfaced in a pagan nation. It was during the days of Ashuerus. Now, Ashuerus is is the Hebrew name of the Persian king. His more common Greek name is Xerxes which is a whole lot easier to say, by the way. Uh, it, it means, Xerxes means he who rules over men or heroes, which is kind of ironic because Xerxes, or Ashuerus, was about to get played by Esther. Uh, verse 3 tells us that it was during the third year of his reign. The third year of his reign puts us at 483 B.C. Now I want to give you some kind of timeline so you see kind of where we are at in Israel's history. About 100 years earlier, in 586 B.C., Judah was sacked and the temple destroyed by the Babylonians. And the Babylonian captivity was 70 years until the Persian king, Cyrus, conquered Babylon and issued a decree that allowed the exiles to return to Palestine. In 538 B.C., Zerubbabel led the first 50,000 exiles to return to their land and begin temple construction. 
Now after Cyrus, the great King Darius came and expanded the Persian kingdom. And during his reign, the Jews completed the temple in 515 B.C. and relaunched the Passover, a great celebration for Israel. So Esther really takes place about 60 years after most Jews had returned to the Promised Land and about 30 years after the temple was rebuilt. Here's a few things to note. The events of Esther were triggered by God's providence even before Esther was on the scene. Right? The, the return of exile, the raising up of Cyrus, the pagan king who gave the decree that they could return, all these things set it into motion. And the setting of Esther was arranged by God's providence so that the Jews, some of the Jewish people, remained in Persia while Ashuerus was king. Now, Esther is the only biblical record of people who remained in Persia. If you want to read about the people who returned home, you can read Ezra and Nehemiah and Zechariah. Only Esther talks about those who remained. And why did they remain? You know, a hundred years earlier, Isaiah and Jeremiah, the prophets, had urged Israelites to return to Palestine once the captivity was over. Why didn't we're not told exactly why they didn't return to the promised land, but it appears they may have been somewhat complacent, maybe even disobedient or negligent. Again, we can't say with certainty. Whatever the reason, we know that God did not abandon them. And that's a really, in part, the point of Esther. The point of Esther is to say, you know what? God is working out his covenant promises and his, his, um, the trajectory of redemptive history, even or maybe especially with a group of people that remained in Persia. Esther's proof that God was with his people, even though they weren't helping rebuild the, the Jerusalem, even though they weren't celebrating the Passover, right? The opportunity is there. This, this is what the Jew lives for, to be in the homeland and worship at the temple, but yet they remained in the comforts of Persia. During this post-exilic period, the big question for God's people was wanting to understand their status before the Lord. You know, they had broken the covenant. That's why they went in captivity. Now they're wondering, where are we at with the Lord? How does this work? And the book of Esther subtly addresses the question of the covenant from the perspective, again, of those who did not return to Jerusalem. And it at least gives some affirmation that he is with them. Again, in the text, it says that Ashuerus reigned from India to Ethiopia. Now, at the time of Esther, Persia was the largest empire in history with about 50 million people and with land from modern-day Libya and in northern Africa all the way to Pakistan near Asia. The Persian Empire lasted about 200 years and suffered many conflicts with Greece. For example, just before Ashuerus, the king Darius was defeated by the Athians, Athenians in Greece during the, the famous Battle of Marathon, you know, where that man ran 26 miles. Now, Darius was determined to get revenge against Greece, but he died before he could satisfy his vengeance, and the task of defeating the Greeks was passed on to Ashuerus. This will come into play as we continue into the chapter 1, but for now, just know that Persia and Greece had conflict. 
Finally, here in these first verses, we read that Ahasuerus was on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. Susa was the capital city of Persia, situated in modern-day Iran. It was a royal winter residence. Uh, you, you can think of it as his snowbird location. Uh, there, was, there was three other royal residences, uh, but Susa is mentioned here to emphasize that Ashwera was enjoying the good life. He was in the comfort and security of a fortified citadel. I mean, this is like summer vacation. This is uh, the best place. So the takeaway from these kind of first verses is, is, this, is to be encouraged. It's, it's to really be comforted that God's providence is in the historical events of right, bigger picture history, but also in the historical events of your daily life, uh, which includes your past, your present, and your future. As we said at the beginning, Satan wants to kill, still, and destroy. If possible, he would destroy the nation of Israel because that would make God a liar and it would make his word untrue. And at this time, Israel seemed somewhat complacent and prone to compromise. Uh, they were vulnerable to Satan's temptations and strategies. In Esther, though, God's unconditional promise to his people appeared jeopardized. But God was always true, always in control, and always carrying out his promises. That's why in his wise and gracious providence, he situated the Jews in the capital city of Persia at just the right time. You and I are exiles in a strange land, but we can take comfort that God, the heart of God's character is on display in Esther and know that God is working in your life even when he's unseen. In response, he calls us to trust him, to obey his word, and to worship him. Well, as we continue the story, before God raised up Esther and Mordecai to rescue his people, right, that's where we're going in the weeks, but before he could do that, he had some other pieces to put in place. And that the big thing that needed to happen, Ashawaris needed to throw a party. The next demonstration of God's providence is God's providence in the ordinary moments. God's providence in the ordinary moments. Now, by ordinary moments, I mean common or familiar. Uh, most of God's work in our life occurs during the mundane, kind of average parts of our life. In verses 3 to 9, we read about three feasts. And these aren't ordinary feasts, but they're ordinary in the sense that they're common to royalty. I mean, these are lavish and excessive. But there's nothing miraculous or unusual about them. Kings throw parties. And, and these three feasts that we're going to see, they really give structure to this section. They introduce even kind of a theme of Esther. At the climax of the story, Esther will prepare two banquets about, around the middle of the book. And then at the end of the book, we learn about the Feast of Purim. In other words, the beginning, the middle, and the end of Esther are punctuated with feasts. And that's significant because the book of Esther was really written to explain the origins of the Feast of Purim. Right? The Feast of Purim is a, is a Jewish feast that's not mentioned or not introduced in Torah. We'll learn more about it in chapter 9 in a few weeks. But for now, we see that the story begins with a feast of vainglory, right? the king's vainglory. And the, the story is going to end with a feast of God's deliverance. One more example of this kind of ironic reversal that's so frequent in the book. In this case, we read about royal feasts that have some specific purposes that God wanted to accomplish. 
Follow along as I pick it up again in verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he, that is Ashuerus, gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hanging, uh, fast, violet hangings fastened with cords and fine linen and purple, purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry marble, mother of pearl and Precious stones, it's probably a lot like your house. Uh, drinks were served in golden vessels and vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Uh, hopefully that's not like your house. And the drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ashuerus. Otherwise, fairly ordinary events, right? It's lavish, it's excessive, but it, I mean, it's just the king feasting, having a banquet. And the first feast is really this great banquet to display the king's wealth, glory, and greatness, especially to his military leaders. As I said before, there was conflicts between the Greek and the Persia, and here we, we know we can confirm with historical records that here, King Ashwares was throwing a party to get ready for the big battle with Greece. Uh, he, he's, he's preparing his military campaign. He wants his nobles and his military leaders present, an estimated kind of 15,000 people. So what he does here is he, he displays his wealth and his abundance and his generosity because he needs to booster the morale. He needs to get all these soldiers and military leaders in good spirits that says, yeah, we're ready to take down Greece. Our king is for us, and he's, he showed us these glorious things. We're inspired. That's part of the point here. Well, this massive six-month-long party highlights the vainglory and self-indulgence of this Persian monarch, right? He, he believes that he can uh, kind of manipulate the situation or that he can do as he wishes, Mind you, his kingdom was inherited, and, and he had lost most of the battles up to this point that he had fought in his first reign. Nevertheless, the king wants to give confidence. On historical note, when Ashuerus finally did attack the Athens and Greece about four years later, I mean, the, the strategies took a long time to develop, and he had just the right timing. About four years later, he was defeated. That was at the Battle of the 300 Spartans. Maybe you've seen the movie 300. Afterwards, there was this ongoing battle with the Greeks until eventually Alexander the Great overthrew Persia and established the Greek Empire. But here, we're at a feast, and they're preparing for the battle. The second feast was a lavish garden party that everyone was invited to. Now it's not just the nobles and the military leaders. Hey, everyone come in. Everyone be merry. Everyone be excited that we will defeat the Greeks, we will expand the empire. And this time we're given kind of a detailed description of this lavish, luxurious, and ornate gardens. 
Uh, they also sought the, the most extravagant language possible to depict this really excessive party. Ancient historians and archaeology actually confirms the biblical account. Uh, the wealth is not hyperbole. Uh, the riches of Persia were the envy of the ancient world. The couches of gold and silver, yeah, they were solid gold and silver, not plated. Plus, when Alexander the Great finally did conquer Persia, he found, listen to this, 836 tons of gold. Uh, that's the equivalent weight of my t- 1,200 of my Toyota Siennas <laughs> in gold. In addition, wine was served in unique and expensive goblets. Maybe, we don't know for sure, but maybe even the goblets that were plundered from Jerusalem temple when Nebuchadnezzar overthrew it earlier. In this case, the wine was flowing freely according to the king's generosity, according to his wealth and glory. The Persians were famous for drinking. Uh, the drinking, however, in this case, was not mandatory. We think that sounds odd. Would, is drinking ever mandatory? Well, I, it's, it seems as though there was a Persian custom that you only drink when the king drank. If the king didn't drink, you didn't drink. But here he says, you know what? Drink whenever. You don't have to wait for me. Go all in. It emphasizes kind of an indulgence and, again, wants to highlight the king's supposed generosity. Uh, the point, much like pagan kings before and after him, Ashoharis was focused on vainglory. He was impulsive, excessive, presumptuous, and we'll find out foolish. God's people were living in this empire with this ruler. And while Ashoharis was arrogantly celebrating the glory of his empire, God noticed and God acted. The king's drunken stupor that will come up here and his selfish request set in motion God's plan to preserve and deliver his people. God often uses humble, kind of modest means to accomplish his purposes, doesn't he? Sinful man tries to build up his own pathetic kingdom and, and pretend that he is at the center of the universe. God, however, does not need to prove himself to anyone. He is self-sufficient and self-satisfied. He does not require the praise of man to validate his glory. In the end, though, God will host an even greater banquet, an even more lavish kingdom that will make the Persian treasure really look pathetic. The king of kings will sit on the center, at the center of his kingdom, and all will bask in, in worship. So here we have two feasts, the military feast, the feast for everyone, and then a third feast. Uh, the third feast is briefly mentioned in verse 9, Queen Vashti gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ashuerus. Vashti was possibly the queen's title, meaning the best or the beloved. And the woman who belonged to Ashuera was speaking of his harem, about 360 concubines, although he only had one kind of elevated wife at a time. Now, there was no custom in ancient Persia that required men and women to dine separately. In fact, wives typically accompanied their husbands to banquets, although the wives would be excluded from the heavy drinking parties. In the book of Esther, Vashti's banquet served really kind of two functions. There's two reasons it's mentioned here. It emphasizes the more royal generosity. Even the women were treated to their own kind of privileged guests. Even the women had their feast. 
Again, lavish build up here. Second, there's, it, kind of, it sets up what will come next. We needed a scenario where the queen and the king are in separate locations so the king can issue his fatal summons to the queen. So in God's providence, in his sovereign working out of the situation, Queen Vashti has her own feast. Again, we see God's subtle providence in the ordinary moments. The, the drinking edict made it easier for the king to indulge so that on day seven of the feast he was drunk and he was positioned to make his foolish request. The presence of the noble and military guests will require swift action after Queen Vashti refuses the king's summons. The women's separate feast makes the request possible and Esther an example of how at one crucial moment in history the covenant promises of God were fulfilled not by miraculous intervention, but through completely ordinary events. God fulfills his promises through his providence. God was not overt, his word not direct, and his face not revealed. Still, behind the veil, God's providence towards his people was manifested in this, these kind of ordinary kingdom feastly affairs. God unfolds his will for our lives through the same providence. He uses the mundane events of life, some happy, some quite tragic, to form Christ in us. It's the ordinary details of life that require faithfulness and really kind of a God awareness, a God consciousness that God is acting, that his promises are true. Because ordinary moments are infused with the purposes of an extraordinary God. So we want to trust God's providence even when we don't see it or understand it. As Paul Tripp said, you shouldn't conclude because you can't see the hand of God that God isn't at work any more than you should conclude that the sun isn't shining because you're in the basement and you can't see it. So God's providence was at work in historical events and in ordinary moments. And thirdly, God's providence in human decisions. God's providence in human decisions. In this chapter, we see three decisions that obviously function as part of God's providence. Uh, the first is the king's request to present Queen Vashti before his guests. Look with me at verse 10. On the seventh day, that is the final day of the feast, of this second feast, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded a whole list of eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ashwares to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. This is not hard to understand. The king was drunk and he makes a foolish request to summons the queen. Now, the reason he wants the queen's presence, uh, well, well, it was to parade her beauty. Uh, Vashti was kind of a living trophy of his power and his glory. Again, everything about the scene is lavish. Everything is about this vainglory and, and pomp and all this. And in the end, he says, you know what? I've shown you the gold, and let me show you my beautiful wife. And well, just a, the cherry on top. She was part of his wealth, a possession to showcase. 
Uh, some Jewish sources in, interpret the request to require Vashti to appear wearing only her crown, but I think that's really kind of unlikely. Uh, there's no reason to speculate or think there was that kind of immoral twist to it. And, and I think he just wanted to uh, show off. Ashwara is intended to present Vashti really as his property. And everything about chapter 1 points to or seeks to point to the greatness of the king. Even Queen Vashti exists only to serve his purposes, which will make her non-compliance intolerable. If you can see the scene, he's with his princes and his nobles and the military leaders, and he's showing off his, his glory and his wealth and his generosity. And then, as we'll see, he's going to call the queen. And that's the second human decision Queen Vashti's refusal. We see, the human de- we see the decision for the king to summons her, and now we see the queen's decision to refuse. Verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. For a reason we're not told, the queen did not obey the king. It, it seems likely, though, that the, the king used his authority in a way that would dishonor the queen. And the shame was great enough for her to refuse and accept whatever the consequences would be. For example, as I said earlier, during Persian feasts, once the drinking became serious, the queen would leave and the concubines would be summoned to entertain the guests. Now, concubines were the lowest kind of level of the royal wives, and and they were the women especially trained to entertain Uh, They would come before the king's guests with dancing and and music. And Vashti may have felt that the king had reduced her to the status of a concubine. Uh, The request to wear the royal crown when she comes would just add injury to insult because it it made a mockery of her exclusive status. Well, regardless of the nature of the request, it's likely Vashti, she didn't want to be degraded among these drunken guests. I think you can understand we can only say with certainty that the king's request and the queen's refusal, if nothing else, we know they were according to God's sovereign plan. I mean, think of verses like Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the, in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And here, the Lord is using these human decisions to set up what we'll see next week to have Esther in place. Well, in response to the queen's refusal, the king consulted his advisors, and Memucan gave a proposal that seemed to please the king. We read about it in verse 13 to the end. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being a whole bunch of names, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saved the king's, who who saw the king's face and sat First in the kingdom. Verse 15, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ashwara delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ashwara's. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands in contempt since they will say, King Ashwara's command commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will, 
will say to the same to all the king's officials and will will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of Persian and the Medes so that it may be may not be repealed. The Vashti is never again to come before the king Ashwara and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man must be master of his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Memucan gives, gives counsel to the king on how he should respond. And there's so much here that we're not going to comment on, but you just see, I mean, just the dripping with irony, right? The, I mean, the queen said, the, the queen, one of the queen's punishment is not to come into the king's presence, which was exactly what she refused to do. Uh, the king gives, ends up giving this edict that says to the, all, all his people, all his empire, um, that the, the women should come under the, the master of the household, which ironically, he was not able to do. Right? Don't be like me. I couldn't control my wife. You guys should do it differently. I mean, there's just so many different ironies like that in here. But the point really is to give the reason and the, the context for Esther. Queen Vashti's refusal was an unacceptable breach of etiquette. The, the most powerful man on the planet was publicly embarrassed in front of his esteemed guests. So, they, so the king was filled with rage and he took swift action. After consulting his advisors, he issued an irrevocable edict to banish the Queen Vashti from the king's presence and forbid any future appearances, possibly to prevent revenge. Queen Vashti was to be replaced with someone better than her, meaning more beautiful or more obedient. And the king, Ashwara, sent a letter throughout the empire charging all men to be masters of their households and the women to honor their husbands. Now, apparently, at least according to the advisors, Queen Vashti's insubordination risked kind of setting a precedent for all women in the empire because it was a public defiance. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but it, it seems odd. And it almost seems really unnecessary. When you read this part of the passage, uh, we understand we're getting to Esther. We're moving towards Esther. So why do we need this inclusion of the edict? Why do we need to you know, know all those things? And Well, a couple of reasons. Not only does King Ashwara want to avoid Queen Vashti's precedent, he also wants to firmly establish his own precedent that the replacement for Queen Vashti must act according to this new edict. But... This is the interesting part, more central to the story, is the book of Esther was written with this kind of beautiful symmetry and parallelism. In the bigger storyline, Vashti's subordination to King Ashwara parallels, parallel, excuse me, what will come later in Mordecai's insubordination to Haman. So later in the story, we'll see Mordecai is refuses to bow down to Haman in similar fashion to Vashti's refusal to obey the king's request. In both, in both cases, the result is a decree. Vashti's insubordination resulted in a decree that affected all women, and Mordecai's insubordination resulted in a decree that affected all Jews. 
The author is making sure we understand that human actions have consequences. Human decisions have implications, but those actions are facilitated within God's providence. There's no coincidences or accidental circumstances. God is purposeful, and he intentionally writes a story to accomplish those purposes. So Vashti's removal anticipates kind of the climactic tension of the story. Vashti courageously refused to allow the king to dishonor her. And later, when Esther must speak to the king, she too will risk her own life. She too will risk the same fate as Vashti. And by that time, the foolishness and impulsiveness of king is well known. But we, have a, we have a context, we have a setting to say, you know, what kind of king was Esther speaking to? He was speaking to this kind of king who gets drunk and makes foolish decisions. So with this, with his one decision to display Vashti as, at his war council, Ashwer set in motion a chain of events that culminates in the deliverance of God's people. Fulfilling the promise of an ancient covenant made long before in a distant land. When we think of the redemptive history, we think of the great miracles that display God's power, but the mighty acts of God are linked together through long years of human history by a chain of seemingly insignificant events, ordinary moments. And God is no less in those. Through human decisions, God moves all of history forward to accomplish all that must happen before the return of the Son, Jesus Christ. To Esther, we're introduced to the mightiest king in the world. We're introduced to him at the height of his glory, and yet he was the second in power. His word and authority, but there is another word that directs human affairs, removes queens, and speaks through the mouths of counselors. In the book of Esther, God's power and authority is the hidden force that orchestrates in ways that even the world's greatest monarch cannot resist. The story of Esther illustrates that human action is essential to divine providence, yet God's triumph in history ultimately does not depend on what we do, but on what He does. It depends not on our character, but on his character. Listen, God works. God works in the mess and moral ambiguity of real life. Despite Israel's disobedience and moral compromise and, apparent, and God's apparent absence, he had not abandoned his people or his promises. And in our lives, no matter how bad the circumstances appear or how much power and control workers of evil seem to have, God is capable and committed to redeeming and working in his people. Esther retells the story of a dramatic and unexpected turn of events. More significantly, some 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ is the, pivotal, is the pivot point where an even more life-changing turn of events occurs. We see so clearly the providential way that God orchestrated the death and resurrection of Christ. It's that same God that worked in Esther, that same God that, that was um, accomplishing the gospel. It's the same God that's working in your life. Well, chapter 1 ends in suspense. There must be a replacement for Vashti. And already the, the reader anticipates that God, not the Gentile king, will sovereignly choose the next queen. Already we see that, yeah, Asherah is kind of, a, kind of a schmuck. 
Like he's just kind of one of the role players. God's going to accomplish what he's going to accomplish. So the reader wonders not if, but what God is doing and how he will direct the steps of those involved. So we too can have that same confidence in your ordinary mundane moments, in your messy moments, in all of it. The Bible is real and relevant. And Esther is an invitation to acknowledge the brokenness and the difficulty and the mundaneness of life, and then to observe the all-powerful, infinitely merciful, perfect, and compassionate God works every aspect of your life to accomplish His redemptive purposes and your eternal good. Let's pray together. Father, we've taken time here to think about your work in the lives of your people as recorded in Esther. And Lord, we can so relate. Our, our lives are filled with the mundane and ordinary, the, the daily. And we're encouraged to see that the unseen God is at work in the midst of it all, accomplishing your grand purposes and, and working all things to, together for the good of those who love you. So we, we believe this. We see you. We, we know that you're at work. Encourage our hearts to trust you, to obey, and to worship according to all that we know to be true, even as we read and have these glimpses of the way you work through seemingly normal circumstances. Lord, just cause us to have a God consciousness and an awareness that you're with us and you're moving in our midst and we can cling to your promises and walk in obedience. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.